morning, everybody. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are trustworthy, that we can proclaim throughout the different seasons of life uh, whether or not reality matches our desires, whether we experience great success or prolonged difficulty. God, that we trust you, that you see all, that you know all, that our perspective is just a limited slice of your overall plan and that you have promised to care for and to provide for the needs of your children. We trust you and we worship you. And we pray, Father, that you would help us today as we open our Bibles to Philippians, as we hear from your word, that you would continue to challenge us and build us up and encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've probably heard it said that more is caught than taught, right? It's a fairly common saying many of us have heard before, and I don't think that's always true, but I think it's basically true that when you look at life and you look at how people grow, it's very often the case that you grow by what you catch from other people. You grow by what is caught. And this is due to mimicking others. We're at a fun stage uh, in life right now at the Gatsky house. We have this little 22-month-old boy named Karsten, and he continues to develop, and he grows in his mimicking abilities of his sisters. And so just two days ago, he was wanting to do something, and I said, no, Karsten, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this instead. And he kind of leaned back a little bit, and he said... Okay, cool, Dad. (laughs) Now, he doesn't know what cool means. The most, the the highest number of words that he can string together, I think, is three, and maybe four on a really good day. But for him to respond to me with what I was going to tell him to do was very simply mimicking something that he learned from his sisters. You see this in young people in all types of ways, don't you? I think of the boy who watches the Cleveland Cavaliers with his dad at night, and then on Saturday comes to his own basketball game, and he mimics his favorite player, (laughs) and it's fun to watch. And actually, it's a key part of how kids grow in their development of sports. When they watch sports, they're able to see how tactics are played out over the course of a game, but they also learn habits (laughs) that they mimic in their own sports, and it's Part of what they see and then part of what they copy goes to how they grow. This is true of young women as they look at how their mothers treat their fathers and play it forward. It's often an example of how they will treat their husbands when they get married someday. And it's true of adults. Maybe even more than we'd like to realize or admit. We mimic what we see other people doing. We mimic what we see on TV. We follow and copy leaders that we admire. We even copy style and trends. And this is why advertising is so successful. Quite simply, much of our learning and growing happens by what we catch from other people. We change as we mimic those around us. 
Now, over the past number of weeks, we've been in this book of Philippians together. And we've been talking about spiritual growth and how we can move forward together in progress in our spiritual growth. And this week, the section of Philippians that we're going to look at points us to the reality of growing by following the example of specific types of people. Not just anybody, but specific types of people. And so I want to ask you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 through 30. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab that pew Bible in front of you. It's found on page 981. And I do encourage you to open the scriptures today. We'd love for you to be able to follow along very directly uh, with what I'm going to say because it's derived from here in God's word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. Paul writes to this church at Philippi and he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son With a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. Near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. It's interesting to note that as we've been working through Philippians together, Paul is talking about growing as a believer, growing together as a believer. He's talking about this grandiose spiritual dynamics of working out your salvation with fear and trembling and what that means on the ground. And seemingly right in the middle of the letter, he just plops down this little sort of family business section. Hey, by the way, I'm going to send these two guys to you. But he doesn't just tell them that he's going to send them, as I would say, hey, by the way, Amy's coming over to your house today. No, he, he commends them. He takes a little bit longer to explain why they should listen to these men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Not only does he tell them their credentials in a sense, but the implication is that you too would mimic the way of life that they have. That yes, they're going to come to you and they're credible. But more than their credibility is that they're worthy men to copy, to follow, to look at carefully and observe their pattern of life. You know, following others is part of the Christian life. Did you know that? We so often think of in our dynamic that we just sort of grow 
individually or maybe in a vague context of large community, but as we've already established, we grow generally in life by mimicking other people very often. And that's true spiritually for us as well. Biblically, we see it all over the place. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 26, Jesus told his disciples to do just that. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I.e., I'm taking up my cross. You too copy me and take up yours. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Paul tells the people very directly to imitate him, particularly because he's imitating Christ. He says this, he says, Though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus just through the gospel, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And we see in the passage we just read in Philippians chapter 2 that there is this sort of father-son dynamic, one who is mimicking another with Paul and Timothy. We read it just a moment ago, verse 22, look at it with me. You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. And he'll go on to say later in chapter 3, Join one another in following my example, brothers, and carefully observe those who live according to the pattern we set for you. And so what is the pattern that is set before you? What does it mean to copy, to follow, to mimic? Jesus, and then Paul, and now these guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Who should we look for as our example? Well, Paul commends these men to them for two very different reasons. The first, looking at Timothy, is that Timothy is an example of an others-centered life. Now, it's no surprise to you that there's a lot of self-serving people out there who do things for their own gain. But even more than that, I think if we're careful and in a moment of honesty and self-examination, we would say that many of us struggle with self-centeredness in our behavior, in our outlook on life. This is just a common sin problem for all of us to varying degrees, to have most of our thoughts and most of our efforts and most of our energies expended on what we want, what we desire, how we want to feel, and what we hope for. But here we see that Paul commends Timothy to them because of the exact opposite reason. He is an example of a person who has an others-centered life. Look with me at verses 19 through 24, and you can see how he's described. Verse 20, Paul says that I have no one like him. Later in verse 20, he says that he is genuinely concerned for your welfare. And verse 21, that he's not seeking his own interests, but rather the interests of Jesus, unlike so many around him. And notice the connection there. Timothy seeks the welfare of others. He seeks their welfare, but he's also seeking the interests of Jesus. 
And so that is to say that as you come to know Jesus, as you continue to grow in knowing him, as you begin to understand his immeasurable value, as you experience his love and grace and mercy applied to you, and you grow in his interests, you see very clearly that the interests of Jesus has a direct implication for others around you, for their welfare. And so in being concerned for their welfare, but having the interests of Jesus in mind, Timothy has come to realize that, man, these people will be so much better off if they understand who Jesus is. If they're forgiven of their sins, if they grow in relationship with him and follow him with all of their days. This is the gospel, and it is for you. And it's also for the welfare of those around you. And so what does this look like? What does an others-centered life look like? Well, it's really not that hard to describe, is it? Let me give you just a few examples. I could give certainly dozens from our own church family, but let me give you just a few. I think of a guy in our church named Jeff Frankfurt. Jeff is a man in our church in his 40s who's been serving in Awana on Wednesday nights with three- and four-year-old kids. And let me tell you, those three- and four-year-olds absolutely love Mr. Jeff. They don't want to graduate out of his class because they want Mr. Jeff next year, too, and the year after that, and the year after that. Now, as I was observing this dynamic happening, and I, I, I began to understand what was actually going on here. And that was, Jeff was coming in after a long day at work. He used to, a long commute back to Canfield and rolling into Iwana just a couple of minutes before it started. And he was peeling off his jacket while simultaneously grabbing the book of a little three-year-old girl who's holding it up to him and sitting down with them and going through their Iwana verses. I thought, man, why would a guy like Jeff want to do that on a Wednesday night after a long day of work and an hour commute to get back home? And so I pulled him aside one Sunday and I just said, hey, Jeff, I just want to say, um, I know that it's a quiet kind of behind the scenes things and most of the families that, of the church probably don't know what you do, but um, those families who have little three and four year olds know what you do. And we just, thank you. you. I am so encouraged by what you're doing. I just wanted to thank you for it. It's making a big difference. And he, his response was wonderful. It, it, it communicated a sort of a multi-directional vision for why he serves. He said, you know, I really just love seeing these little kids grow in their understanding of Jesus and getting to know him and getting excited about him. But you know, we also don't have a lot of men that serve in children's ministry. And it's important for the kids to see that men serve in this way as well. And it's important for the other men in the church to see that you can still be a manly man and serve the Lord with these tender little people. An others-centered focus that is worth mimicking. Just one more example. I think of Doug and Karen Krogan. 
members of our church for a very long time. Many of you know them. A few months back, I received a letter from their former neighbor, a gentleman named George. Now, as a brief aside, when the pastor of a church gets a letter from the neighbor of one of the congregants, like this usually is not a good thing. But in this case, it was actually a very good thing. He wrote to me and told me about his life. And I had met George before, so I I had an acquaintance with him. Uh, He is a self-professed agnostic who has been uh, exposed to and experienced some pretty terrible things in the name of religion, multiple religions, including Christianity. And nevertheless, when he and his wife, Kat, moved in next door to Doug and Karen, it became apparent that Doug and Karen were going to focus on these people, they were going to love on them, and they were going to do so in the interest of Jesus. And so George writes... He says, I returned stateside and I found Christians who were quick to judge and shun those who were touched by darkness. I'm one of those. I lived and thrived in darkness. When one fights evil, you must meet it where it lives. And darkness is its lair. He went on to describe some personal and family hardships they had gone through. And he said, when I was at my lowest, I was alone and disgusted with all the fair-weather friends that I had. I've never knelt in my life, but suddenly I found myself doubled over and full of rage. No self-pity, just rage and more rage. I was volatile, gruff, damning, everything around me. And then a stranger from next door came by, and he greeted me warmly and offered to help, and I rebuked this obvious pretender. But he came again, and I continued to discard him. Yet he persisted. He saw his fellow man in pain and reached out for him, regardless of how many times I rejected him. This man helped me. He counseled and facilitated healing. He neither carried a Bible nor quoted scripture. I, however, insulted him. I quoted scriptures to him simply to demonstrate how idiotic his beliefs are. Yet he persisted. And befriended me anyway. I'm an agnostic and still am today. I'm set in my beliefs. This brave neighbor lives and practices the principles of being a man of Christ, a Christ man, a Christian. Doug Krogan is neither a pretender nor a Bible thumper. Doug Krogan is a kind and loyal friend who has the courage to practice what he believes. He's devoted to his faith and not just a Sunday practitioner. This stranger approached me without agenda except to help his fellow man. Doug entered my life as a stranger, and there he shall remain as my brother. Now, George's and Kat's story isn't over. And Doug and Karen Krogan's story isn't over. But here's the larger point. That when you focus on your own interests, when you live a self-centered life, then your growth will be stifled and the ways in which God uses you will not be nearly as wide or aggressive. But, but... When you say, I am going to focus an other-centered life in the interest of Jesus, now you grow and God uses you to reach those other people. 
So Paul says, mimic the one, copy the one, follow the one who has the other's centered life. The second example of the one that Paul commends is from a man named Epaphroditus. And he commends him for a completely different reason. And that reason is this. Epaphroditus is an example of one who is proven through hardship. He's not a quick upstart. He's not someone who comes on the scene quickly, but he has been walking the walk through thick and thin for some amount of time. Now, I wonder if you've ever met anybody who has been a competent individual in a variety of areas of life. She was charismatic. She was skilled. She was intelligent. She was articulate. She put her faith in Jesus. And immediately, all of those skills and passions and ability came right alongside with her newfound faith, and boom, she began to grow. It wasn't long before she became an example for others to follow. She was a much more upfront, charismatic personality than many others. And so as a result, people began to look at her as the example to follow. She was a budding leader. But then something difficult happened. And things began to change for her rather quickly. And rather than relying on God even more in the midst of her difficulty, she became angry at him. And rather than diving deeper into her service of him, she began to recoil and withdraw. And rather than showing her faith to be robust in the midst of difficulty, she shows it to be shallow and even false as she goes upon her own way. In a short matter of time, this woman has gone from the rock star example Christian to one that you would not commend to anybody to follow. But what happens to those who already started to mimic her? Those who already said, this is the one that I want as my example for a pattern of life. What is to become of them? When Paul points to Epaphroditus we see that just the opposite is true. He says, while others shrink back, Epaphroditus pressed forward and therefore mimic him in this way. Look at the description in verse 26. He says that he has a longing for others, a longing for them. He says in verse 25 that this man, Epaphroditus, is my brother, my fellow coworker, my fellow soldier. He uses all this language to say that we have gone through the most important things together. in serving the Lord. And what that does to people is it binds them together uniquely. Family language, the band of brothers, this type of dynamic that cannot be feigned or altered. He says in verse 30 that Epaphroditus risked his life for the gospel and nearly died doing so for the work of Christ. And in verse 29, that they should receive him with all joy. And honor such men because of his proof of hardship. So when you consider these things together, when you consider the one who is proven through hardship, like Epaphroditus, and the one who is others-focused, like Timothy, I wonder how we might categorize these characteristics into one kind of package. We would say something like, this is a person who is self-sacrificially serving God. We might say that this is a person of substance. 
we might say, pattern your life after people of substance, not simply people of style. Who should we look to to be our role models? Who should we seek to be as we lead others? Pattern your life after people of substance, not simply people of style. That's an important word for any season of history, but I think it's uniquely important for us today. Because today we have no shortage of self-serving teachers. We have no shortage of celebrities and television personalities. We live in a time that honors the external success and diminishes quiet, faithful service, even in the midst of suffering. We live in a time that elevates the young and often diminishes the old. We live in a time where external promotion trumps internal fortitude. In short, we live in a time that highly values style, but is impatient when it comes to substance. But the encouragement here is you want to pattern your life after the people of substance, not simply the people of style. And I know the two aren't mutually exclusive. I know you can have a person of substance and a person of style. We see this to be true. But I also know the temptation of our culture and our time. The temptation is that flashy, trendy, celebrity, self-promoting people tend to have a massive following. And the call for us is to pattern our lives after the people of substance, not simply the people of style. And so, what do we do with that? How do we apply that? Here's a couple of ways. I wonder who you are looking to learn from. I think we all mimic people in certain ways, unintentionally or intentionally. We might as well just do it intentionally. And I hope you don't think that you're just sort of learning out on your own without the influence of other people in your life. I don't think it's true, number one, and I don't think it's possible, number two. Who are you looking to learn from? I wonder, as you think about our church, who are the ones that you might point to to mimic? Stop and think about even a few names now, in this very moment, or at very least today. People where you say, these people are of substance. These people are of other-centered life. These people have been proven through difficulty. And I want to be like her in that way. And I want to be like him in that way. I want to continue to grow forward because of these people of substance. And then thirdly, I would just say very plainly, don't just observe them from a distance, though that's helpful, but actually try to spend time with these people. Listen to them. Let them be your fathers and mothers in the faith. This is how discipleship functions and how we continue to grow as you model your life after people of substance, not just people of style. Jane was probably in her early 70s when I first met her. She would come to church on Sunday and she'd take her seat very abruptly. She was all about the business. She'd come on Wednesday morning to women's Bible study And she had the look about her of a woman that didn't particularly try to dress a certain way or a person that was too concerned with her own appearance. 
This was fairly uncommon for the part of Cape Cod in which she lived, which is a fairly affluent area. Jane and her husband Bob were people of means, but you would never know it to look at them. And actually, at first glance, they were people that were fairly easy to dismiss. And I went about my business and she went about hers until one day I called her up on the phone and I said, Jane, can I come over and visit? I want to get to know you better. And she was thrilled and she welcomed me into her home the very next day. And we sat and we had coffee and she told me her story, (laughs) her story about how she was an alcoholic and someone told her about Jesus and his forgiveness of sins and she put her faith in him and she never touched a drop of alcohol again and how at that time in history her husband was a horse doctor who was sort of on some of the leading edge of equine medicine and and big stables in Virginia and New York were starting to hire uh, horse veterinarians on their staffs and to live there on the grounds and care for all the needs of the horses and how they became successful and, and fairly wealthy doing so. And eventually they opened their own practice and they would treat horses and a variety of other animals and how they would use that practice, that veterinary practice, as a vehicle to get involved in the lives of other people in the interest of Jesus. So people would come and they'd bring their animals and Jane would talk to them about Jesus and Bob would save their horse. By the end of the day, both of them walked out of there and everybody was getting saved. And how she served in her church faithfully month after month and year after year, steadily plodding along. These were others-centered people. (laughs) These were people of substance. And she began to tell me about how it had been really hard the last couple of years since Bob had been diagnosed with dementia. But she trusted the Lord, and she remained faithful to him, and she remained faithful to her husband, and all the while still seeking to invest in other people. And so Bob would sit there while they had small group in their home, and sometimes he was engaged and sometimes he wasn't and Jane would meet with women 20 or 30 years younger than she was to invest in them their spare time was focused on other people and all the while attempting to manage Bob's illness they were self-sacrificial even in the midst of hardship and as they got older things got harder and harder people of substance not people of great style They cared about the most important things. And as such, they were an example to follow. Jane died a couple years ago. And Bob joined her just a few months ago. And only later did I learn that they were probably worth millions of dollars. But she would never know it. And it didn't really matter. It certainly didn't matter to them. If it did, Jane wouldn't have worn those awful brown velour sweatsuits that she always wore. But it certainly didn't matter to the people that they influenced as well. And how many people that was over the course of years of steady plotting, of other-centeredness, of proven through hardship, I have no idea. But it was dozens, if not hundreds, of people. One thing was for sure— Theirs was a life worth mimicking. I wonder who you are patterning your life after. 
I wonder if you are thinking about who might be trying to pattern their life after you. (laughs) The encouragement today is pattern your life after people of substance, not simply people of style. Let's pray and ask for God's help in this very thing, shall we? Please pray with me. Father, we pray, looking at a text like this, seeing these examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, and we pray just a very simple prayer. God, help us to intentionally see and follow those who are faithful to you. And help us to grow in our faithfulness so that those who come beside and along behind us are found faithful as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.